Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick-hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still, less ukulele. You know we're gaga for session beers, and that the British win the crown for flavorful session beers. But what happens when you take a Yorkshire-trained brewer and give him the challenge of making a big beer? On this episode, I sit down with Andy Black of Yorkshire Square Brewing in Torrance, California. We talk his journey into brewing and just how he saw double when he recreated the special Castle Dangerous Export Stout using the old double or reiterate mashing technique. But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. So these are Castle Dangerous, both on... Uh, yeah, like one, side, one, one half's cast, the other's CO2. Now, did, did this use the uh, double mash technique as well? Or? Yeah, it's the same beer. Okay, uh, okay you just... Yeah, okay. We bottled cast and, and uh, put it in cake. Take a sip of beer. Cheers. Boom. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the show. And I am sitting here in Yorkshire Square Brewing Company down in lovely Torrance, California. And I am sitting here with my good pal, Andy Black. Andy, say hi to everybody. Hey, folks. How you doing? Now, uh, you have this history of being, you know, sort of Englishly minded. I think you come by that uh, fair, uh, by fair habit. Why don't you tell the audience about that? My story into brewing follows so many other people's paths of, you know, home brewing into, uh, you know, getting more into it, getting more into it, becoming sort of insatiably devoted to the uh, a, a hobby and then deciding to ruin one's hobby. Um, the difference I made, I suppose, was I didn't make a make my bank as an engineer and then and then and then cashed it in for a brewery. Uh, I was young enough that uh, I just I got advice to 
you know, follow my passion and go to school and move forward with uh, move forward with a more traditional pathway of uh, develop, developing my skills as a brewer. So um, I was in Rhode Island at the time, and uh, God rest its soul, pretty things. Uh, Dan Paquette advised me to do a, a couple of things, not get too angry on Twitter, should have been one of them. But um, that was going to school, and um, we shared a passion for British beers that had been cultivated through going to the University of Vermont and being able to partake in the late Greg Noonan's uh, last work of Vermont Pub and Brewery, which kind of uh, specialized in a lot of British classic styles. Well, not say specialized, but they had a lot of British classic styles in that sort of late 2000s uh, brew pub kind of tradition where they still had a lot of classics on and a, a good deep portfolio, lots to choose from. So I got to try some of my first cast beer, some of my first British beer. I just really found a love for it as a beer drinker through there and then through home brewing and wanting to dive into historic beer, yet being better at research uh, than, I guess, the average bear. Uh, I wanted to do something that could actually be historically accurate rather than just shooting for the moon and saying I made a Gruet <laughs> and just making some guesses. I think the information that was available to home brewers at the time isn't as good as it is now, for sure. So we have a lot more Maybe I would have taken a different path at that point, but but then it was Ron Pattinson and his blog "Shut Up About Berkeley Perkins" that really got me going into a lot of different historic styles and discovering how much of British beer has been abandoned. Just being so fascinated by why would we abandon traditions and really popular beer styles like mild, uh, traditional porter, and things like that. So it's just been a a path of discovery and enjoyment and finding people that are like minded and discovering that. I'm not kind of alone in this passion for old British styles. It's become really fruitful. It's probably the wrong word to say, but rewarding um, in all all different ways to uh, become a British specialist in the land of IPA and, and you know, the Golden Hop uh, in Southern California because it's just so different. It's been really interesting bringing a traditional style of brewing, a traditional family of beer styles to uh, people that weren't expecting it, but this is such a, a beer-soaked place that brewing beers that are outside of the mainstream brings a lot of people out of the woodwork that love dark beer, or love XYZ British style, or just they, they've never had a pint of bitter, or they've always drank a pint of bitter, and they're just so, so into it. It's been really rewarding. And now that I'm at my second place focusing on British styles, it's been uh, it's just been kind of a whirlwind now that I've I've been brewing in LA for about six years now. I think I've gotten around. I know a lot of people. I'd say um, pretty big deal, huh? uh, and um, we get a lot of respect now. People aren't like, oh, I don't think this is going to work. You know, this people really like IPAs in California. Didn't you know that? And it's like, yeah, of course they freaking do. Um, we're never going to compete with that. And now we're at, now we're at a place, and I'm with a team, and in a nice location where. This is solid. I'm really happy with this. It's great execution. Um, really happy with how the beers are going. I feel like really mature as a brewer. Um, you know, six years of brewing professionally in Los Angeles has just, it's changed me as a brewer, uh, but I haven't really changed how I think about beer. It's just given me tools and experience to better execute my vision for things. And I try to bring to Los Angeles, not just this British beer thing, but uh, more philosophically driven brewer, brewing where I have a concept to communicate um, that goes a little bit deeper than British beer, but does is exemplified by what British beer stands for to me. I'm, I'm sitting here, of course, I'm having a pint of the drift, which is what I traditionally have whenever I uh, come come by your facility. And, and uh, I think you're in a bitter mood, right? Indeed. It's been a tough day. 
<laughs> pint of bitter is always always good. Well, and I think you know both between here and you know the clouds where you also helped uh, found that and you know started. I think you've really sort of brought back some idea of flavorful session you know type beers mm-hmm. you know at least into the LA world you know and now yeah I I have a place where I can I can go get a pint of mild that I really enjoy and, and listeners of the podcast will remember that I lamented about this and in fact the listeners of the podcast if you look at the show notes the picture that is there is actually a, a pint of the drift you started I mean you also kind of followed in Dan Paquette's you know sort of footsteps because you actually went over to Yorkshire to to learn how to do this. This, this is not just, yeah, you know, hey, you farting around here in the U.S. You, you actually went in and did some work in the old country. Despite my autodidact tendencies, yeah, I had to go to England. I I still kind of crave more of that experience. But I worked for, well, I went to a professional program at Brew Lab Limited in uh, Sunderland, UK. It's the just south of Newcastle. They operate a lab program and they, they they branched into education out of the University of Sunderland. It's led by uh, Dr. Keith Thomas. He hasn't done much homebrew writing, but he's a pretty well-respected beer writer and done a lot of great research on the yeast uh, genetics. Then I also did a formal internship at Rooster's Brewery, which was a pioneering pale ale brewery in uh, England, in North Yorkshire. They, we have a couple of beers that are loving homages to the beers that they made and continue to make this is their it's their 25th year and we'll, i'll be going over in august to actually do a an anniversary collab with them it's been quite a whirlwind seeing their business and my own kind of like running not concurrent but uh we've, we've both had like a lot of growth since we each, we each parted and I, I certainly don't claim any credit for that but it's like i get to root for this team over there because they were kind of small not small but uh small enough and they've just grown into something else and really been grown into this point where they're really been recognized for the contributions that they made to the development of British style. So they're by no means a very traditional British brewery, which may surprise the people that know me. They'd expect that I would go to like Fuller's or Sam Smith's or, or, uh, or, Tim uh, Taylor's. or oh, oh, I wouldn't have left. Um, <laughs> I would have chained myself to the boiler and they wouldn't have let me go or I wouldn't let myself go. Roosters instead still did a lot of cast beer, but they really, they were one of the first to start importing American hops and using them in a quite substantial way. Yet the beer they make is so ethereal compared to the West Coast IPA and um, other IPAs that were going on at the time. It was you know, a little bit of Nelson Savon here, a little bit of Amarillo there, a huge late edition of Cascade, and that was the only hop in the entire beer. And then you get a beer that's between 38 and 4.5%, and it just is so smooth and beautiful. And the bouquet that you got out of them was just exquisite. <laughs> Professionally, I'm kind of chasing, trying to make their beer still. So that was a hugely influential experience for me and made me look at hops in a different way. Because I've never, I've never considered myself reactive against what we have going on with hops lately in the industry. But it's annoying because I'm a small brewery. I would love to be able to get just one box of Nelson. And instead, everybody's throwing it into their triple IPA and frankly, wasting it. Because I've seen more beautiful beers made for, with half the alcohol content and with a third the amount of Nelson in it. I think one of those sort of eye-opening moments I, that I've had as a beer drinker was going over to the UK and having IPA on cask, mm. uh, or even a pale ale on cask, and realizing just how much the hop expression changes, you know, from what we're used to with a lot of that CO2 driven sort of, you know, big, bright fruitiness and pininess and, you know, sort of aggressive bite. And on cask, like the hops suddenly do a whole different dance. Uh, Yeah. And you can brew really hoppy beers for cask. So 
you know, my time at El Segundo was really eye-opening for a lot of different reasons. The main ones being that I'm a very slow brewer um, and was told so every single day for about two months. It was the ability to experiment with a bunch of really heavily hot beers that were quite strong and just throwing them in cask and because we had to and see what we end up with and seeing that you can't actually brew like a really strong, really big hoppy beer for cask. I had been kind of on the side of it just can't be done. It changes the hops too much. It brings the alcohol forward. There's not enough malt body in an IPA or, the, or your typical IPA to bring it forward in the cask format. I was, I was proved wrong and I'm okay with that because it was really fun and provides a a basis for me to be able to re- recommend things to other brewers to say, you, know, you should do this beer, not that beer, this beer, not that beer, this method versus that method for creating casts. So it's been nice to build my own experience base and be able to provide a, a service or be a, be a font of knowledge, I guess, to other brewers and help them develop cask because that helps us as well um, if other people make better cask beer. I always feel like the problem with cask beer, at least here in the U.S., is is the service aspect of it. Right? I mean, that's part of the reason why it started to go, you know, go the way of the dodo in the U.K. was, you know, it turns out, yeah, I mean, like beer is sensitive to how how it gets treated once it leaves your facility, and cask is even more so. So, I think one of the great things about you know the little breweries and the brewery tasting rooms is it does actually give you a chance to have a proper cask program and make sure that it's actually treated well. Well, it gets to also to show off a point that I still rally on is that you can you can blame cast not being popular on the bar but by it being served at the brewery it really shows off that the brewers are messing up the beer too it's more common than not paul pendike had it from ukbrewing.com had a little point that was going around and um saying that a lot of brewers fear the cask they fear what it can do and they do as much as possible to kind of iron out the iron out the details and make it more like keg beer. They overcarbonate it all the time because they're afraid of it being undercarbonated. Yet by doing that, they ruin their beer. If they just thought about it a little bit more, did a little bit more trialing, things that they do for all their other beers except for cask, then maybe they would end up with they can find a sublime cask. Maybe they can find a good standard operating procedure for doing it. It just gets kind of shoved in the corner. I can't tell you the number of brew pubs I've been to where cask beer that they have, if they have a cask, is you know, it's not a it's not a true and proper cask, right? It's it's oh that's our production beer that we've now thrown into a cask with lavender and some extra hops, you know? Yeah, and yeah, they're not doing cask conditioning. They're not. It's just nope. We we took carb carb beer and threw it in a cask with some other stuff, and now we're going to serve it that way. I'm always an advocate for breweries. All they need to do is take their their standard beer and just put it in a cask do it properly it's so much so interesting because you have a beer that you know inside and out and you turn it on its head by putting on a cask and it could be really exciting and interesting i did that with citra pale ale when we were at el segundo i was just like oh why don't we have this on cask all the time or this is maybe a little bit more black magic and blasphemous but i turned a keg of uh firestone 805 into a cask (laughs) it's so good well, yeah, you stop and think about it. 805 is not that far off from like just a, an ordinary type beer. So Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It made a very decent bitter. Very decent. I was quite happy with myself. I was chuffed to bits, as they would say. I was going to say, just to give people the context, I mean, we are here in, in Torrance and a tiny little brewery here. How big, how big is your brew house? We're slightly large for given the facility size, but we, we have a 10 barrel brew house. We easily could have been a five. A small little tasting room. About yeah. 3,000 square feet, including our patio. The brew house is 590 square foot. So you got a nice little snug space with you know dartboards and uh, football matches and football jerseys mm-hmm. up on the up on the wall. Oh, and the fireplace. Uh, Everybody and, loves the fireplace. And yes, and the fireplace, which is what we're seeing next to you right now. 
let's actually kind of switch gears because I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, you and I both really dig session beer. I mean, I, I I dig the ability to be able to have a couple of pints and not get loopy. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, it, it just feels like a good way to go through the I day. I drank early doors. I was at the LA Galaxy versus LAFC match, uh, which was intense, but. We won't talk about sports. I was drinking early doors from about 8 a.m. until about 8 p.m. that day. That was intense. Held up, though. So now, like I said, though, I mean, we both love session beer. And I mean, of course, you know, it's like, yeah, it's amazing how well it just drinks. And, you know, the next mm-hmm. thing you're like, my glass is empty. Mm-hmm. But you guys just had for St. Patrick's Day sort of a, a special event. Uh, describe that because it's a little bit of a left turn. Uh, uh, we called it Nout But Stout. Which is uh, Nout is Yorkshire dialect for nothing. So it was nothing but stout. It was hard to get enough stouts. So I'm happy to say that we only had one IPA that had been dyed black. Um, you know who you are. <laughs> He's the only one that I'd allow to get away with that. And we called it a modern black IPA. So it was, it was okay. That's where black IPA ended up. So uh, we took the excuse of St. Patrick's Day to just have a no holds barred, we don't care, we love dark beer. If you don't like it, get lost uh basically power beer nerd event <laughs> so we could, i got to invite every any brewery that i wanted went through the rolodex of friends who makes the best dark beer call them up you brewing anything for saint patrick's day and they say they say yes of course and if they don't and they say no i'm like what the hell's wrong with you uh it's your only excuse to brew dark beer every year and we had had a great response from breweries we even had a couple of people get upset that they weren't invited but there's reasons there's an invitational beer event we had about 350 people here i think our tiny little place. Oh, I can say that must have been uh, el- elbows to elbows. Yeah, there's a lot of people in the parking lot. We did a little, did a little panel and everything. It was just, it was a great excuse for an event. It was so much fun. People really dug the beers. It was just a really great event where it was just so beer centric, and people were coming because they, they, they want to know what was going on, or they really love dark beer. They're like Yorkshire Squares throwing an event, and they've got tons of cast, and they've got guest beer. It's got to be freaking good. I think we delivered. There's a, like things that I would change always. I used to do a lot of event planning. So it's always like, it was good, but it wasn't perfect. And uh, I can't wait to do it again next year and make it a little bit bigger. But it was just throwback to events that I used to love going to with, with my own spin on it that was a bit smaller, a bit more intimate. And uh, 75% of the beer was on cask. But we had 22 or 23 beers on, 18 beer engines. Um, and I think it was 13 or 14 guest breweries had it. It was really cool. Just get to be able to call up all these people that I've had a good relationship with. And I get to, I respect them as brewers and just be like, guys, like send me, send me your stuff. Send me the, send me the good stuff. I have an excuse for an event. And they're like, oh, that sounds so cool. It came out of coming up with a good name. So it did, it did definitely start there. I start, I start there on a lot of things sometimes with, with beer, beer ideas and other stuff. We went to uh, a, a larger beer festival event in Los Angeles, and nobody brought cool stuff. Nobody brought anything cool. It was like this was a beer nerd event. It was pretty expensive, custom glassware, boutique food trucks, all that, and everybody brought something that was too strong and one of their flagship beers. I was like, "What are you guys doing? We know what you're about. We know X Y Z Brewery, like kind of what your portfolio is about. So why did you bring your standard IPA? Why did you do that?" Everybody else brought an IPA. Make a big show of it. So there's so much money involved in a festival. And I can see from a brewery standpoint that they, they it should be about promoting your brand. That's why you're participating in a beer festival. But there should be space for beer festivals where it's not about that. We make money. Sure. 
we need to just make enough money. But what about having cool events? Like it's supposed to be, do you want to go to that? If you're a member of the industry, do you want to go to that? Besides the fact that you've got a free ticket, would you want to pay for that? And that's the standard that I apply to a lot of things. So I still try to employ an outsider's perspective when I can, because I think it makes it allows me to engage better with what the needs of the consumer are. And when we make events, that's uh, a guiding thing is, why should I give a crap about this thing? You know, I can go to any number of things today, especially a day like St. Patrick's Day. There were six other events going on that were pretty decent. Um, why this one above all? And I want the brand of Yorkshire Square and I guess the brand of the Andy Black uh, that we deliver good, st- good things. It's always a quality standard. There's always an expectation that things are thought through and that we go a little bit deeper. We push a little bit harder because it's worth it. Well, so now speaking of delivering good things, let's talk about the beer that you made for this. Again, another excuse for doing things. Uh, we'd had an export stout called Castle Dangerous that I made uh, once upon a time and then made again here last year. I'm trying to think when I made it. doesn't matter. But we did just a, a standard, you know, standard uh, sacrification mash, uh, boiled it, brewed it, fermented it, etc. Came out. It was decent, but I like to push flavor. And I don't like to push flavor with weird, weird uh, ingredients. I want to always want to progress technically as a brewer. And if I can push my ingredients to give me more, I got to do it. And I came across this technique called, I heard it called reciprocal mashing or double mashing. Apparently, other people do it, but it's not well documented. Um, it's more common for people to talk about processes like this at uh, the homebrew level, I think. Whereas larger breweries, it's often done out of a shortage of mash ton space and things like that. You know, it's just an infrastructure thing. And so they don't maybe brag about it, but you end up with a beer that can be exquisite. So the background of this really goes back again to pretty things is they made an imperial stout called uh, Barba Papa. It was a 12% imperial stout that just had this, oh, it was unctuous. It was thick. You could spread it with a spoon. It was like if Marmite tasted good and was in liquid form and oh, just so thick. I like Marmite. Uh, oh, uh, there are other spreads to choose from. And I had, I'd had it before when the brewery was still open. And I just I hung on to a bottle for like five years. And then I, I had it, I don't know how many months ago now, but sometime last year, my wife and I, she was just like, why do we keep holding on to this? What are you going to do with it? And I'm like, well, you know, Dan, like we're not going to be able to get these beers anymore. You know, Dan doesn't, Dan's not making them anymore. What are we going to do? So she's like, what special occasion do you need? It's Wednesday. Let's have a beer. <laughs> like, fine. We open it. We drink it outside. We get a fire going. It's just, oh, it's so good. It's just that body came right back. That malt was there. It's just so unctuous. And I'm like, I, fine. I got to start looking into this. It had some cryptic copy on the side, uh, sort of explaining that. Man. No, no. Dan doesn't write anything. Uh, it had cryptic instructions not instructions, but a cryptic description on the side saying something about we mashed it twice. And I'm like, what, wait, what, what's that? There's something going on there. And I'm like spinning it around in my head. I try to check all, you know, going through the internet archive, trying to find any information on process or anything, nothing. There's a tidbit on beer advocate on their uh, beer description that went a little bit deeper that said something along the lines of, you know, we took one mash and then added more grain and mashed again, something like that. And I'm like, Oh, then that goes into about like 
two months of casually looking around on the internet to find process and see if I could find any more information from my homebrew forums and stuff. I come across reciprocal mashing a couple times and I'm like, okay, okay. Get myself a little bit comfortable with the general idea of it, but I still didn't really have any plans to make it. Then um, an excuse to brew Castle Dangerous came up again and I'm like, oh, this is a perfect beer to try it on. We're not about to make an Imperial Stout, but we got to get more we got to get more malt into this thing. I The last batch was okay, but it didn't have as much to give. It didn't have as much to give as I like. Where, where can I push it more? But we were already maxing out the mash ton. I'm like, what do we do? I can add invert sugar. I could double batch it. I could get my yeast pitch just like just so. What can I do? And I'm like, wait, what about double mashing? What about double mashing? I don't know what I'm going to get. And it's a big risk. It's an expensive beer for us to make. So I launched into doing a strong beers per, per quarter. Um, and then we're going to release them in bottles. And I'm like, this is a great excuse to just try something. It's a bit experimental. I don't really want to release something in bottle that we haven't really made before, but gosh, darn it. We're small enough. Who cares? Let's just see what happens. We're not, it's not going to hit the bottle and be a bad beer. We know that our controls are good enough that we're not going to package a bad beer in bottles. Other things can go wild at that point, but at least the beer we're putting in to the best of our knowledge and ability is going to be a good beer. So that's our kind of standard. And so let's just, freaking go for it mash tongue can't fit any more malt so we pretty much have to anyway i start putting together notes for it and it's just like <laughs> turns into an absolute beast of a brew day and just a lot of guesswork i didn't know if i was gonna just have to throw out all the grain there, there's a reason why you don't see a lot of people doing <laughs> doing this technique yeah but it ended up being i think the i think the results kind of speak for itself the beer is I mean, almost the opposite of, you know, like what we were talking about in the first half of the, the program with, you know, the sessions were, I mean, this is hitting you with sort of intense plumminess, you know, all those dark fruits and those kind of dark toffee type sugars. And then, yeah, you go and you take a sip of it and it just, just coats the whole of your mouth. Yeah. It's 9%. And it's like, it's not, it's not going to kill you at 9%, but we're getting as much out of 9%. As I think we can, and we're not, I think people that have to go into 10s and 12s and et cetera, they're just sort of, they're having a laugh once they get that high. So this is what I like to call a special occasion beer. Oh, yeah. And we have our everyday beers, which is the core of our pro- portfolio that you can drink more than one of and be like, sweet. This is the, it's the end of the night. It's a special occasion, et cetera. We don't want to make this kind of beer all the time. It's, it's unfeasible for one, but you respect beer more when it's special. But people are ignoring are ignoring whether or not it's strong anymore. Everybody makes strong. So what's special beer anymore? It's lost its cachet. And little that we're able to contribute to that, which we can only really do by its own it, the scarcity of the product. We want to push those ideas that you have everyday beers. You have you have strong special occasion beers. You don't drink strong beer all the time. Well, all right. So now let's get into the actual double mashing, the reciprocal. I've also heard it called reiterated mashing. There's a couple different names. I, I know I've. Well, I think the first time I actually ran into the concept was uh, from Randy Mosier's Radical Brewing. He had a, a thing he called it uh, double double mashing, and it's it's not Mosier without a funny name, no, or a funny drawing. So l- l- <laughs> yeah. let's go into the exact process that uh, made Castle Dangerous not only you know drink so well, but also a sort of ginormous pain in the butt brew day. It could it definitely could have been worse, but uh, the stuck mash did hurt. Uh, so the fundamentals of it are you're doing two mashes, and instead of uh, running them both into the boil kettle and doing two completely different separate mashes. What you're doing is taking the wort, the, the full runnings from mash one and using them to mash in your strike water for mash two. 
you're still sparging, or at least what we did. There's, you know, there's so many different steps. There's all kinds of variations, but I sparged both batches of, of grain and they just, then after the second mash, they get, they're fully combined and they'll, they move over to the boil kettle and are boiled and handled the same as any other beer. So basically mash one with water, Mm -hmm. run your usual process louder and sparge whatever into the boil kettle i assume to hold it yeah heat it back up to strike or hold it at strike yeah, get, get, get keep that warm grains out yeah new grain into the mash tun yeah and now pull that wort back out of the boil kettle right we're able to hydrate the grain here so we actually did it with the wort which was kind of messy you put wort through your through your hydrator yeah yeah. We can separate it out of the process. So it's not running at, out into any pipe work and it doesn't get back into the gray nogger or anything. But it was like, I hope that doesn't splash back up. And we did have to run pretty slow because it really, the grain stuck up, stuck together like nobody's business. I mean, the viscosity was already pretty high say, from mash imagine one. That with the, imagine that, a bunch of sugar making something sticky. I know. Yeah. We kind of, I wasn't sure what we were in for. So I kind of uh, kept things a little bit tame with gravity projections so that we could i could get an idea of process before we really started to you know push this thing and see if we can go you know try to get over nine percent or something like that it was pretty modest target for mash one was 1053 um specific gravity and then mash two was 1061 specific gravity there wasn't really a specific reason for that more just i they need to start probably over 1050 because some of the notes i'd seen from other people was to expect to roughly double the gravity of the combined mashes because a big question mark is what kind of freaking mash efficiency are you expecting out of this how how much sugar gets left behind you know just by soaking into the grain so that's why i decided to do we could have really pushed the alcohol content high if we hadn't done a sparge but I wasn't willing to uh, waste that much grain. I want to maintain some levels of efficiencies because, of course, you can make a you know you can end up with one point one one in the boil kettle if you don't if you just do first runnings. But like that is such a huge waste of grain. So, and I'm not interested in making a beer immensely strong. I'm interested in making a beer that's immensely good and immensely malty and immensely body driven. So, how, how much grain are we talking about for this, as opposed to say like a normal bash? Um, for us, not that bad. Which is part of uh, wanting to try this as well. Is you you keep your mash efficiencies up if you reduce the you know the the, the density in the in the mash tun and keep the bed depth down. So, mash one was four hundred and seventy pounds, and mash two was seven hundred and fifty five pounds. Both of those are within range. We so it's like twelve what twelve hundred pounds grain. Yeah, we we brew a pretty wide range of alcohol content i think compared to most breweries so uh though the majority of our stuff is quite small so we'll have batches that are 350 pounds you know upwards of a and i think the largest regularly brewed one is is about 700 so both of these are within the wheelhouse of that of that mash time there's quite a bit of grain but working out the numbers given the og that we ended up with which uh after everything was said and done and i did a little kettle dilution um, was uh, 10.99. Given our target or expected efficiencies out of that ton, and that's around about the same grain weight that I would have used to hit that if I had just been able to do one standard mesh. So I may, it's probably off by about like two bags of grain, which isn't that bad. Like we said earlier, the upshot of this is I mean, we get a very rich, very you know, sort of mouth enveloping, very warming beer. But with and even though the alcohol is there and the alcohol is a definite note, it's not. It, it doesn't feel extra harsh because the beer itself is thin or lacking some body here. Yeah, yeah. I want to 
just want a lot of body in that. We're not going for strength. We're going for fullness where that special occasion beer that we're making really pulls it. It, it doesn't pull any punches. It really gives you what we want of it. And I want to coax as much flavor out of that malt as we can. And I think this has been like, I haven't had a lot of R&D that I'm like, all right, that was like a resounding success. Oh, another note I have on it too was I surpri- really surprised myself, or not surprised myself, the beer surprised me by being right out of the tank at a beer that is at this strength and was like, not a long fermentation. It, w- it followed standard protocol. It was just right out of the tank. Just delicious. I thought what's usually happened for me because we use a lot of English yeast is I like to age things for a little bit. It kind of takes a little bit of an edge off of them. The the harshness kind of um, mellows out, especially for something with so much roast malt. A little bit of aging has been nice. And this right out of the tank was just killer. <laughs> I, I hadn't really seen that happen with any of my beers before. I was just so happy with the 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 results of, of the program can it can walk people through if they wanted to do a beer like this a, a double mash or a reiterated mash or whatever term you want to use for it sure like how you did your calculations to get at to that level uh, i think the main one to start out with is you need to figure out what, whatever your process is we have things fairly dialed in i'd say coming up on our 48th batch he says as tomorrow probably turns into an absolute show uh knock on wood uh is, this uh, is what happens. Yeah. Attempt the universe. Yeah. Is calculate the work that you get, the work volume you get, that includes the sparge out of mash one, needs to be enough to, to make up the strike for mash two. Mm-hmm. So that will actually help decrease the grain load in mash one and will increase the mash efficiency out of that as well because you have less grain to deal with. Mm-hmm. So that was a primary part of the calculation. And then off of mash two, there isn't really that much calculating you have because the only numbers that you're really inputting. Or the main, main question mark really is just the gravity, but the numbers you're putting in from mash one are that amount of work that you're going to use as strike water. So other than that, you can kind of follow a typical protocol. How does the math work on, say, the, you, you said what, your mash one had a target gravity of like 1053? Yeah, 1053. And then the second one was like 1061? Yeah, I did that just strictly off of, that was how much grain I had. <laughs> but it, <laughs> My base malt. But is there any way to go from, you know, okay, I got, Batch one's ten fifty three. Batch two is ten sixty one. This should yield to me that ten ninety nine that you got, or is that just kind of a little bit of blind luck and roll the dice? I'm sure there's a way of calculating that one, but I don't. I haven't done it enough yet. I'm sure it it works out, and you can taking your mash efficiency from mash one work out how those numbers are. I haven't run the numbers because I wanted to just do another another batch of a pale beer and see what we get. Kind of not roll the dice because we've done it once before. But roll the dice a bit with a with a bit of hind, with a bit of hindsight and kind of see what we get with the gravity. I'd say that roughly doubling is about right. So, but we should have ended up with you know all that added together with a one point one. So yeah, but I mean again, you're going to have losses. You're going to have things taken up by protein and things you know yeah. trapped in the grain. Yeah. yeah so sense. so there's all kinds of question marks that you have in doing that, and we just need to see it move into the next stage before I can say, oh yeah, the numbers work well. On that, I try to be a technical brewer, but uh, 
it's a bit of experience and I'm sure somebody from MBA is probably pounding the table being like, it's clearly this roughly doubling is a good rule of thumb. And for me, it's sort of like that's strong enough. So now in comparison to like, you know, some of the lighter beers that you're making, yeah, I mean, this being up there at 1099, that's, yeah, that's big. And I wanted to talk a little bit of the difference or actually before we, before we talk some of the difference, let's just make sure any other tips that, that you can think of that people, if want to do Thank a double you. mash. Yeah. Especially with doing a dark beer, you're, the, the pH of the, the your strike water is going to be crazy low because you're obviously using wort. So what we did was add a crap ton of pickling lime in the for the second mash, and that was that was the real guesswork. I'm like, 200 grams seems good, and what do you know? 200 grams was perfect. Uh, made me feel like a bit of a god that day. Probably wasn't quite enough, but we still hit 5.2. Mash pH on yeah. mash two, but with with mash one, I mean, did mash one have a bunch of dark malts in it as well? Oh or? yeah, I just I'm sure there's a way that you could do this that makes it a lot easier. Um, I've heard or I read about on some of the homebrewer forums of people spread um, separating them out. It also makes it a little bit easier because you've got to mill in a second batch and reducing your specialty malt um, decreases your way out time. At, if you don't do it before, uh, but it also makes your mill run a little bit faster if you just got base malt in it. But I didn't really know what it was in for, so I just just used the same grist for both of them. Just, uh, just in different sizes. Yeah. I was just like, uh, I mean, I could do it that way, but I also know what I'm looking for in terms of this beer. And if I make small sacrifices because I wanted to save 20 minutes and weighing out grain, then that's not really what this beer is about. That's not really what I'm about. So if as we get deeper into this and I see, okay, we could have added all our specialty malt into batch one or batch two. Okay, we'll do that. But for the time being, it was like, this is kind of fun and interesting. You know, maybe we'll, you know, I think we'll, we'll I'll just do it because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make a strong version of this one beer and double mash it. So we'll just say what it says and double mash it, two mashes, same beer. So our same grist. So watch your pH, and there might be some experimental value in the idea of just doing like a pale first mash mm. to avoid dropping the pH too far. Yeah, but then you'd have to, I mean, then you're going to have to artificially keep up your, your pHs elsewhere because for us, we would still want to see our pHs in the same range, darker pale, So because we're going to have a better sparge, we're going to have a better mash. So unless you want to reduce your mash efficiencies, you might as well just get some pickling lime anyway. Just throw it in. And if you, especially if you're a home brewer, you're small enough, you can keep making adjustments. So it's a bit harder when there's you know almost 800 pounds of grain in there to make uh, on-the-fly mash adjustments. This is true. All right, so we got that. Uh, don't uh, you said that you had a stuck sparge at one point or stuck, uh, stuck water? Oh yeah. Um, on on mash two, we got pretty gummed up. That was pretty. That was a bit upsetting, but it only added. You know, didn't want to didn't want to toss it out, so we sat on that one for an additional hour, uh, longer than we normally would. So, now, do you think the gumminess came from the extra protein load or something from the having wort in there as opposed to water, or is it just? I think my rice hulls didn't get mixed very well, and my mash ton mash ton doesn't really handle the loads that are you know seven hundred pounds plus. Then it doesn't really handle it very well. The geometry is not really there. So we didn't. So you're you're dealing with equipment uh, inadequacies. Yeah, yeah. There aren't even any oats in that batch, so that would be our normal normal thing to gum everybody, get everything up with that much additional protein. But um, yeah, it's just it's a lot of specialty malt, a lot, lot of specialty malt in that beer. So it was going to happen. I just needed to add pretty much a, a full bag of rice hulls to one beer. 
knowing's half the battle, and now you know for the next time. In, indeed. All right. Well, hey. So let's let's go and you know let's talk the the impact here because you did pour us two different samples of Cast and Dangerous, uh, one of them on cask and one of them uh, on CO two service. And yeah, I, I thought it was kind of interesting to taste the difference between them. You know, because I think the cask version is all that kind of silkiness, all that dark fruit right up front. The roast is actually kind of nicely restrained. You're not getting hit in the face with a bag of coffee. Yeah. Whereas the keg batch is definitely a bag of coffee oh, yeah. right in the mouth. Well, and, and so the CO2, the, like the, the CO2 version, you know, because of that carbonic acid that, or that mm. extra bit of carbonic acid mm. and the way you get the pricking of the bubbles on the tongue. Yeah. I think it increases the, the acridness of the roast. Yeah. Which could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending upon what your taste wants to be. How we've gone about the process of double mashing and what I do with the strong beers, which I should admit, or eh, I'll just come clean. They're not really my forte. I dabble in strong beers. These are other people's strong suit. Our our brew house is not well suited to it. Our house yeast is not well suited to making strong beers. And that's all a little bit by design because we don't make them that often. So um, what I like to do with strong beers is kind of sort of let me let them tell me what's going to happen so we, i do my best with creating a nice grist creating a nice brewing condition you know, making sure the, the the yeast is healthy and gets enough oxygen is treated well but flavor profile it's hard to dial in what you think you're going to get out of a strong beer i i always find they throw up questions all over the place of like you know is this intentional how about how about this this amount of ester on your old ale and i'm like no i didn't really want that and they're like well too bad uh, <laughs> you don't get to choose yeah so it's the same with how cask and keg do it i i, I kind of i think as long as i do my job as you know the, the the yeast rancher um and the 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 whatever pithy statement about mash mash munching or whatever you're, uh, you're the wart wrangler yeah the wart wrangler um i get to let the beer kind of decide what it wants to do when it's a strong beer like this and it's really fun to see what it does so i find enjoyment in that because i get to be a little bit divorced from the process that I don't get to experience as a brewer elsewhere uh, because I get very emotionally involved in the flavor profile of the beer and how the beers are doing. But once it becomes a strong beer, I get to go kind of sit back and say, this was a fun experiment. Let's see what we get. And it just comes with more experience of brewing these. And it's, it's interesting to see what it does. And I like the idea, maybe this is bastardizing another thing that Dan Paquette said, but I like to see the beers change, but they should always change for the better. And I like the strong beers to be different because it's interesting. It's a reason to keep trying them and keep drinking them and keep buying them and keep making them because they're going to be different. Really, ha- I'm, I'm happy with that kind of thing. And cask and keg, those different versions, even the bottles taste slightly different. It's like all the same beer. It just, this one keeps throwing up all sorts of different questions all over the place. I really, really enjoy it. <laughs> beer wants to challenge you. Mm-hmm. Beer also wants to be drunk. Yeah. And so I know you said that, that these are, are sort of a, a, change of pace for you uh, sort of a beery vacation i think a lot of brewers treat these sort of you know special occasion type things as a uh, as a celebration right because hey i don't have to go make another batch of that same damn ipa again uh, <laughs> yeah for the first time through on a technique i think that this turned out to be really interesting i i'm not gonna lie i i preferred the cask version over the keg version well again because i think of that unctuousness yeah to me at the end of the day as long as it's not well no i, I don't know so i respect your opinion is the if we avoid major flaws and it becomes interesting and it's not offensive, then we're okay with that because we make a lot of subjective beer and it doesn't have to fit everyone. And that's like kind of the joy of being a small brewery that we don't, we don't have to, every beer doesn't have to be perfectly tuned to every single person and it's enjoyable. 
well, to be able to be like that. You know that you know you bring ten people into the tasting room, you give them these two beers, and you're going to get eight different opinions. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's it's just hard when people get like emotionally involved in it, and they're like, "Why don't you have any more Castle Dangerous on cask? It's all I've ever enjoyed in my entire life." And they're like, "We do make other beers," and they're like, "Yeah, but that was like so great." And I'm like, "Yep." Next year there'll be more casts. I really do. they're like, how could you? Why is it on keg? You have personally like, disappointed me. You are a bad person. Yeah, they're like, it's on keg, and they're like, it's not the same. You don't, you don't understand. Going to smog to drink coffee porter. You disappointed me for the last time, Yorkshire Square. <laughs> All right, well, Andy, thank you so much. Hey, and uh, guys, don't forget. I mean, it, we'll include some notes on on double mashing. You know, we'll include you know sort of a basic how to you know, and that'll be in the show notes. So you'll be able to go to experimentalbrew.com, be able to see that. And in the meanwhile, if you find yourself somewhere near the lovely city of Torrance, let's say you have to go to the Honda corporate headquarters, they're right across the street. Make sure to stop by a Yorkshire Square Brewing Company and, and have you know, have a pint or two or three or four. You'll enjoy it. I guarantee it. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of Andy's adventures in double mashing and just what it takes to make a special beer for his ideal fest. What do you think? Have you made a double mash before? Do you think you got good results doing it? Well, and, and what do you think about his rules for an ideal fest? Are those yours too? Well, stay tuned as we'll have a tasting of another special beer that was double mashed in an upcoming episode of the main show. So now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcastexperimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com or Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrewing forum known to mankind. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this month and this month alone is Habitat for Humanity. So get those pledges in and help us help build some homes. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.